I want to invite you this morning to turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 27, going to work our way through to verse 38. Just by way of context, this passage is a stake in Mark's gospel. It is such because what we will begin to see is Jesus now geographically moving from the north of the Sea of Galilee now pointing towards Jerusalem. He is heading to Jerusalem and up to this point, Mark has shown us brilliantly that Jesus has all authority in this world. He has shown us this through the teaching of parables, through his healing power, to his exorcism of demons, to the raising of the dead, to the feeding of thousands, to the forgiving of sin. Over and over, Jesus has demonstrated that he is the Son of God. But the narrative is now going to change. And we will see that this morning because Jesus begins to disclose why he came into the world. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples in detail that he is going to Jerusalem to be what? To be killed. I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. And then I will rise again. And each time his disciples fail to grasp the moment, what he's saying. Peter in particular here fails to grasp the moment. So Jesus states strikingly to him and to us, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of what? Of man. Peter's failure is the failure of many in our world today. He failed and they failed to recognize that the messianic ruler of God's eternal kingdom has come to die for their sins. And so what does Jesus do? I I love Jesus here because he gathers a group around him, just common folks like you and me and his disciples, verse 34, and he calls them to what? To discipleship. He calls them to a greater gain in life. And he's calling you this morning. You need to know that. This message is for you because he's calling you this morning. He's reminding you and me again what it looks like to be a Christ follower. And Mark says that, doesn't he? He put it plain to them. Plain, meaning black and white, this is what it means to be my disciple. So number one, he reminds us again of the cost. What is the cost? Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him, what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is boldly proclaiming that if you follow me, there will be a cost. He does not say there might be. 
but there will be. That is the very nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. If anyone comes after me, he must deny himself. Following Jesus means saying no to self in order to say yes to God. Following Jesus means saying no to the flesh in order to say yes to the Holy Spirit. Following Jesus means saying no to the comforts of this world, and there are many, in order to saying yes to a life of ministry. You know this, and the youth that I that I'm with every week know this, we live in a selfie culture, don't we? <laughs> selfie culture. It is, it is all about me. It is all about my rights. It's all about my gratifications. And Jesus here says, being part of my disciple is about giving up self-love and self-gratification. Deny yourself essentially is death to the priority of self. The opposite is being completely satisfied, living our own lives for the sake of our own lives. Jesus first calls us to be willing to say no to the one person we have the most trouble saying no to, us. And he's saying, to be my disciple, you first must let go of the hold on your own life. Deny yourself. Then he moves from the cost. And he moves into what's at stake. What's at stake? In other words, as I weigh the cost, right, I'm, I'm a rational human being. I'm logical I'm weighing this out in my mind as I, as I think about following you. What's at stake, Jesus? Why would I deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you forever? What's at stake? Two things. Your life is at stake. Your life. Notice verse 35. For whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. It's an extraordinary principle that is universally true to every person in every circumstance. That what you try to hold on to in this life, in the end, what? It's Jesus saying, you're going to lose it. If you got a grip on your money, your possessions, that car that won't run in the driveway, <laughs> in my life, that's what I have. <laughs> Jesus is saying, in the end, you're going to lose it. And everything that you will lose and give up, for Christ and the gospel, you will gain. You will have for eternity. 
So essentially what Jesus says is you can choose to live for yourself. But when your life is gone, you won't get it back. Your life is at stake. Notice not only that, but your soul is at stake. Notice verse 36 and verse 37. For what is the profit of man to gain the whole world and what? Forfeit. If I forfeit a game, I lose the game. Lose your soul. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his what? His soul. These are two statements concealed in questions. So what's the statement in verse 37? Therefore, there's nothing that you can give in return for your soul. If you're not proud of the ransom of Christ for your soul, then there's no ransom for your soul. Verse 36, therefore, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Another question, making a statement. Namely, if you gain the whole world by valuing it above me, by being more proud of it than me, it won't be able to save you in the end. There is nothing that you can pay for your soul when you have scorned my ransom. Therefore, gaining the whole world will be of no use to you, none whatsoever. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. So we've seen the cost. We've seen what's at stake. Now, what you really are here for is what's the gain? What is the gain of all this? What is it that will sustain you and me when we answer this call and when the going gets tough, when discouragement sets in, when the chips are down, when temptations are howling at the door, when friends and family cast you aside because you're now following Christ, what will sustain you? What will keep you in this? Why would anyone do this? I think the better question is, what is it that compelled the disciples? To what? To death. <laughs> Peter died crucified upside down. Something compelled him to answer this call to that extent. I want to know what it was. Well, I don't want to get into this too deep, but I think the linchpin of this context is chapter 9. I have no idea who's preaching next week, but I'm just going to give you, I'm going to preach his message for him. I'm not going to do that. Chapter 9, what, what is happening in the beginning stages of chapter 9? He is leading Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and there he was what? Remember? He's transfigured. He's transfigured before them. Of all the miracles that they must have seen up to this point, this had to take the cake. Because the glory that was hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ the glory of his true person veiled in flesh that we sing about at Christmas is seen 
and they are what? Overwhelmed, blown away. So much that Peter's like, let's just make houses and stay here. So how were they sustained? They had seen the glory of God. John puts it best in his gospel, I think. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. And we have seen his what? His glory. I love this song by George Strait. It was released in 2008. It's called I Saw God Today. And I'm, I don't know if you like country music like I do. I'm, I'm a hick. I wear boots and wranglers. And, and uh, I came from Kansas, so we wear boots in Kansas. Um, it's a great song. And I think it speaks so loudly to this message that is being preached. He, he says this. Here are the lyrics. Just walked down the street to the coffee shop. Had to take a break. I've been by her side for 18 hours straight. Saw a flower growing in the middle of the sidewalk. Pushing up through the concrete. Like it was planted right there for me to see. The flashing lights, the honking horns, all seem to fade away. But in the shadow of the hospital at 508, I saw God today. I've been to church, I've read the book, I know he's there but I don't look near as often as I should. His fingerprints are everywhere. I just looked down and stopped and stared, opened my eyes, and then I swear, I saw God today. You know, whether it's in the view of the mountains or the crashing of the ocean or the stars in the heavens, I, I used to, when Grace was little, I used to carry her in my arms. Um, I, I can't do that anymore. Um, and we used to look up at the moon. She couldn't have been two, two and a half years old. And I would ask her, who, who made the moon? God made the moon. God made this universe. And it may be the cry of a baby. It may be the laughter of joy and love, the prayer of the righteous, the dance of the faithful, or the sunrise of a new morning. God's glory is everywhere. If we're not too busy, right, in the chaos of this life, we can see the glimpses of the Almighty. But know that there's a cost this morning. There, your life and soul is at stake. 
but the gain, right? The gain. The gain of the call is that one day, one day, you and I will gaze upon the unfathomable and unveiled glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You need to know this morning that the gain of the gospel is Christ. It's not eternal football. It's not eternal golf. It's not just eternal life that I've been rescued from hell. It's eternal life with Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for our sins. May you always be exalted in this place. May you always be supreme in our life as we deny ourselves, as we pick up your cross, and as we follow you. May we take this message to a dying world in the name of Christ our Lord, all God's people said. Amen. Amen.